the myriad details that go into a major event such as this. Reggie Cohen, program manager of the James Madison program and a dear friend, has managed to do what few administrators can do, and that's keep up with Fred. <laughs> Helene Wood, Fred Greenstein's assistant in the leadership program, has also worked very closely with Reggie Cohen and Fred, and together they've made this event possible for the rest of us. For their excellent and tireless work, we're grateful to them, so please join me in extending our heartfelt thanks first to Professor Fred Greenstein and then to his assistants, Reggie Cohen and Helene Wood. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Well, that was more than enough introduction for an event in which I was giving a presentation, but my job, in fact, is to get the show on the road and, and not uh, give a presentation, to get out of the way rather, uh, rather rapidly, uh, but thank you very much, Shauna. Uh, the room we're in is one in which one would be far more likely to hear about the 21st century than uh, five individuals who spent the bulk of their lives, or in George Washington's case, all of his uh, life in the 18th century. But in a sense, as I suggest in the, in, in the uh, little passage on your, on your program, uh, these, are, these are figures of very great contemporary interest in a period when issues of leadership, of getting nations to hold together, of the dangers of uh, failed states are very much uh, on our radar screen. And, uh, why could the new nation not have been uh, a failed state? Uh, uh, certainly the figures that we're going to consider here are central to how that worked, and let's hope that, that, that in hearing about them and hearing them analyzed, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll learn something. I'm really very, very pleased that so many uh, very substantial and indeed uh, uh, pre, uh, preeminent figures in the study of the early republic have been willing to come here and prepared to come here. It's an unusual concentration. And for me, as someone who periodically has uh, organized conferences, it's a very unusual experience. I'm accustomed to organizing conferences in which there then appear people who I've known and known for many years, but in some cases even a few whose work I'm not that uh, uh, excited about uh, reading in great detail. In this case, uh, the, in, in a way that's inside out, uh, uh, I find myself surrounded with people whose work I've read and profited from uh, enormously, but um, uh, with the exception of a few of my colleagues and, and uh, one person who's within commuting distance here, I'm meeting this crowd uh, myself. Um, the um, presentation we'll get tonight is by uh, Gordon Wood, who has uh, told me that he's familiar with his list of publications and with his uh, uh, with with his background. And there is a there is a biographical uh, sketch on him, uh, but just to delineate a little bit of it, he has been on. The, uh, uh, the Brown faculty since 1969, 
which is the year uh, when his uh, award winning the creation of the American Republic um, was uh, published. As I've tried to learn my way around this, uh, 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 this area of inquiry and this period of American history, I've found it very profitable to read uh, and dip into a very lengthy work in which he's one of the uh, one of the contributors, the uh, uh, the uh, comprehensive American history called uh, the Great Republic. Uh, as you know from the uh, um, from from the uh, uh, the program, his the radicalism of the American Revolution uh, uh, won won the Pulitzer. Uh, uh, not even listed there is a, is, is a marvelously distilled short work on the American Revolution that was published two years ago. I suspect some of you would have seen Gordon discussing it, I think, with David Gergen on the news uh, hour just after it came out, and, and we know that there's more underway. The, the commentators, and, and I'll just say very briefly, are both people who have, who have published uh, very interesting books on George Washington. John uh, Ferling's uh, 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 book, the uh, um, first in the tell me, first of men. first of men, is a wonderful one-volume um, read on George Washington. I commend it. And and uh, Stuart Flybiger's book on the, the relationship between two people who were in Princeton, New Jersey at the same time when uh, Congress met in Nassau Hall in, in 1783. His book, uh, Founding Friendships on the uh, Subtle Interaction Between Madison and, uh, uh, and uh, Washington is, is an absolutely fascinating uh, work. So I urge that you read from all of these people. And now I'll turn to the uh, presenter. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Fred. Um, as, you, uh, as you know, we professors are programmed to talk for 50 minutes, and then, uh, I don't know, about a week ago, uh, Fred said to me, by the way, you're, you're talking 20 minutes is, is the lecture, so we can have time for the commentary. So I've cut out every other word. Uh, <laughs> I hope that, uh, you know, the thing that interests me most about the founders and us is why we care so much about them, and it's something maybe we can discuss. I don't know of any other developed country that, pays attention to people who lived 200 years ago. I'm sure Tony Blair does not wonder what William Pitt would think about the invasion of Iraq. Uh, so there's something peculiar about our interest in these people 200 years ago. And the one that most interests me right now uh, is, is, is Washington. You all know about uh, Lighthouse Harry Lee's famous eulogy, First in War, First in Peace and first in the hearts of his countrymen. But what's most important, I think, is that he was the first president. As the first president, Washington faced circumstances that no other president has faced. And I mean, I'm including Lincoln. And he was probably the only person in the country uh, who could have uh, dealt with those problems. The American people had been reared in monarchy and had never known a distant chief executive who had not been a king. Somehow, Washington had to satisfy their deeply rooted yearnings for patriarchal authority, patriarchal leadership, while at the same time 
creating a new elected Republican president. Since the United States had never had an elected chief executive, like the one created by the Constitution in 1787, Washington had virtually no precedence to follow. Not only did he have to justify and to flesh out the new office of the presidency, but he also had to put together the new nation and prove to a skeptical world that America's great experiment in, in self-government was possible. That he did all this in the midst of a revolutionary world at war and did it without sacrificing the Republican character of the country is an astonishing achievement. One that the achievements of no other president, however great, can begin to match. Now the Constitution and the presidency grew out of the crisis of the 1780s. In the decade following the Declaration of Independence, many of the revolutionary leaders had, uh, had become increasingly disillusioned with the consequences of their, uh, their Republican Revolution. The Confederation uh, lacked the powers to tax and to uh, regulate trade and was unable to stand up in, in international affairs. But most important, the states themselves were not behaving as the leaders had expected. Uh, by the mid-1780s, many of them had become convinced that not only was the Confederation too weak to accomplish its, uh, its purposes, its tasks, but more disturbing, the states themselves were unable to function as stable and just, and just republics. Many of the country's leaders concluded that there was too much democracy, too much democracy in the states, and this excessive democracy had to be curbed without somehow doing violence to Republican principles. This is the problem that Madison faced with, when he talked about we need a Republican remedy for Republican ills, majoritarian tyranny in the states. All the Federalists, as the supporters of the new Constitution uh, called themselves, knew that if democracy were to be curbed, then what was needed in the new government was more power. And power in the 18th century Anglo-American political uh, context or theory meant, essentially meant monarchy. In the conventional thinking of an 18th century balanced or mixed constitution, too much democracy required the counterbalancing of some more monarchy. But by 1787, the Federalists knew only too well that they could not speak openly about the need for more monarchy in the government. Nevertheless, there is little doubt that many of them had come to believe that some monarchism was needed to offset the democratic excesses of the American people. Benjamin Rush described the new government in 1790 as one which unites with the vigor of monarchy and the stability of aristocracy all the freedom of a simple republic. Even Madison, who was as uh, devoted to republicanism as any of the founders, expected that the new federal government would play the same super-political neutral role that the British king had been supposed to play in the empire. That a moderate like Madison should see some benefits in monarchy was a measure of the crisis of the 1780s. Other Federalists, like Alexander Hamilton, were even more disillusioned with the democratic consequences of the revolution and wanted even stronger doses of monarchy, stronger doses injected into the American body politic. In fact, Hamilton and the other high-toned Federalists, who in the 1790s clung to the, to the name of the supporters of the Constitution, wanted to create a centralized fiscal military state that could eventually rival the great monarchical powers of Europe on their own terms. Yet they knew that whatever aspects of monarchy they hoped to bring back into America, 
would have to be placed within a republican framework. Now, if some monarchical power were to be instilled in the new system, the energetic center of that power uh, would be the presidency. For that reason, it was the office of the president that made many Americans most suspicious of the new of this new constitution, this new government. The executive or the chief magistracy was, after all, the traditional source of tyranny, and as Benjamin Franklin pointed out, the source in America from which monarchy would naturally emerge. Although Americans were used to Congresses, the presidency was a new office for them. A single strong national executive was bound to remind them of the king they had just cast off. When James Wilson in the Philadelphia Convention had moved that the executive consist of a single person, a long, uneasy silence had followed. The delegates knew only too well what such an office implied. John Rutledge complained that the people will think we are leaning too much towards monarchy. The creation of the presidency warned Edmund Randolph made a bold stroke for monarchy. But the convention had resisted these warnings and had gone on to make the new chief executive so strong, so kinglike, precisely because the delegates expected George Washington to be the first president. Now Washington, at age 58, with his tall, imposing figure, Roman nose and stern, thin-lipped face, was the only American in 1789 who possessed the dignity, the patience, the restraint, and the reputation for Republican virtue that the untried but potentially powerful office of the presidency needed at the outset. Many people, including Jefferson, expected that Washington might be president for life, that he would be a kind of elective monarch like the king of Poland. Indeed, we'll never understand events of the 1790s until we take seriously, as contemporaries did, the possibility of some sort of monarchy developing in America. Now, from our vantage point, the idea of America becoming a monarchy seems absurd, but in 1789, it did not seem absurd at all. After all, Americans had been raised as subjects of monarchy, and in the opinion of some, still seemed emotionally to need to look up to a single patriarchal figure. Republicanism was new and untried. Monarchy still prevailed almost everywhere in the world. It was much of the world was used to monarchy, and history showed that sooner or later, most republics had tended to develop into kingly governments, and it's that sense that the future had to be a more socially sophisticated society, a more mature society that's bound to need monarchy. That's their expectation. That, I think, we have to uh, uh, understand if we're going to understand the politics of the, of the 90s. Now, as ancient Rome had shown, the natural evolution of societies and states seemed, seemed to be from simple republics, republican youth, to complex monarchical maturity. William Short, Jefferson's uh, uh, protege, viewing the new constitution from France, was not immediately frightened by the power of the executive, but he thought that the president of the, of the 18th century, he said, would form a stock on which we grafted a king in the 19th. Others, like George Mason of Virginia, believed that the new government was destined to become an elective monarchy. And still others, like Rawlins Lowndes of South Carolina, assumed that the government so closely resembled the British form that everyone naturally expected our changing from a republic to a monarchy. And to add to the confusion, Vice President John Adams, honest to the core and with little sense of political correctness, was already speaking publicly of America's being a monarchical republic or a republican monarchy. 
From the outset, Washington's behavior often savored of monarchy. His journey from Mount Vernon to the capital in New York in the spring of 1789, for example, took on the air of a royal procession. He was saluted by cannons and celebrated in elaborate ceremonies along the way. Everywhere he was greeted by triumphal rejoicing and acclamations of long live George Washington. With Yale students debating the advantages of an elective over hereditary king, suggestions of monarchy were very much in the air. Of course, they didn't debate that at Princeton. That was a thoroughly Republican place. Uh, we, we can be sure of that with Madison and the Clio Club and the Whig Club. You are now a king under a different name, James McHenry told Washington in March 1789, and he wished that he may reign long and, ha- and he wished that you may reign long and happy over us. It was not surprising, therefore, that some people referred to Washington's inauguration as a coronation. Now, so prevalent was the thinking that Washington resembled an elected monarch that some people even expressed relief that he had no he had no heirs. Washington, of course, was sensitive to these these popular anxieties about monarchy, and for a while he had thought of holding the presidency for only a year or so and then retiring and giving it over to to John Adams, his vice president. In the initial draft of his inaugural address, he pointed out that the divine providence hath not seen fit that my blood should be transmitted or my name perpetuated by the endearing, though sometimes seducing, channel of immediate offspring. He had, he had, he said, no child for whom I could wish to make a provision, no family to build in greatness upon my country's ruins. Of course, you know he had no children. Martha's uh, uh, came as a widow uh, with, with two children, but, but uh, they were not able, not able to have children of their own. Now, Madison, I think, fortunately, talked him out of this. Uh, one of the things that, uh, in this collaboration at the outset, talked him out of this uh, draft, and he didn't mention it in his final inaugural address, but his desire, I think, Washington's desire to show the public that he'd harbored no monarchical ambitions remained strong. His, uh, his, his protests testified, I think, to the widespread sense that monarchy was a distinct possibility in America. Although Washington was sensitive to charges that he had royal ambitions, he also realized that the new government was fragile and needed dignity. But how far to go in this monarchical European direction uh, to achieve that dignity? He was aware that whatever he did would become a precedent for the future, and, and as a consequence, he was very uh, eager to, uh, to seek the advice of those close to him. How often should he meet with the public? He asked his colleagues, Adams, Hamilton, Madison. How accessible should he be? Should he dine with members of Congress? Should he host state dinners? Could he ever have a private dinner with friends? Should he make a tour of the United States like a king? The only state ceremonies that late 18th century Americans were familiar with were those of the European courts, European monarchies. Were they applicable to a young American Republic? Hamilton, for his response, thought that most people were prepared for a pretty high tone in the demeanor of the executive but probably not as high a tone as as was desirable or as Hamilton thought was desirable. Notions of equality, he said, and this is a fantastic sentence, he says, notions of equality were as yet too general and too strong for the president to be properly distanced from the other branches of the government. There's an assumption that the society is going to become more mature, more hierarchical, 
and more adaptable to a monarchy. Of course, it couldn't have been more wrong. The society became more egalitarian. But it's the assumption that the society is going to become more European-like in time. It had to happen because that had happened that way everywhere else. In the meantime, suggested Hamilton, while we wait for this society to develop its proper maturity, uh, the president ought to follow the practice of European courts as closely as he could. Only department heads, high-ranking diplomats, and senators should have access to the president, said Hamilton. Your Excellency, as Hamilton referred, always referred to Washington, might hold a half-hour levy no more than once a week and then only for invited guests. He could give up to four formal entertainments a year but must never, never accept any invitations or call on anyone. It's always to be distant. Washington realized that he had to maintain more distance from, from the public than the presidents of the Confederation Congress uh, had. They had reduced their office, he said, to perfect contempt, having been considered in no better light than a metro D. Uh, in his uh, public appearances, Washington rode, uh, and he tried to, to keep that distance. He rode in an in a, uh, elaborately ornamented coach drawn by four and sometimes six horses, attended with four servants in livery, followed by his official family who were in other coaches. In his public pronouncements, he, like a king, referred to himself in the third person. And he uh, sat for dozens of state portraits, all modeled on those of European monarchs. Indeed, much of the iconography of the new nation, including its civic processions, was copied from monarchical symbolism. Washington conceded that a certain monarchical tone had to be made part of the government, and he was willing, up to a point, to play the part of a Republican king. Obsessed with the new government's weakness, other Federalists were even more eager than Washington to bolster its dignity and, and its respectability. Most believed that uh, this could best be done by adopting some of the ceremony and magistracy of, of, of monarchy, by making, for example, Washington's birthday celebrations rival those of the 4th of July. Like the King of England speaking to Parliament from the throne, the President delivered his inaugural address personally to the Congress. Uh, and like the two houses of parliament, both houses of Congress formally responded and then waited upon the president at his residence. You can see why Jefferson took so seriously in his own inaugural how he reversed that and, and refused to play this kind of monarchical game, which was kept up until Wilson, I think, was the first president uh, in the 20th century to resume the practice of delivering your inaugural address before the before the uh, whole uh, Congress and others, publicly. Uh, the English model, of course, was the model for this new Republican government in many respects, as well as these. The Senate, the body in the American government that most closely resembled the House of Lords, voted that writs of the federal government ought to run in the name of the president, just as writs in England ran in the name of the king. Although the House refused to go along with this, the Supreme Court did use the Senate's form for its writs. The Senate also tried to have all the American coins be at the head of the president, as was the case, of course, with European monarchs, and still is. Although the high-toned Federalists eventually lost this proposal or put the president's impression on all the coins, they made many such attempts to surround the new government with some of the trappings of monarchy. They drew up elaborate monarch-like rules of etiquette at what soon came to be denounced as the American court. They established formal levies for the president that resembled those held by the kings in, in Europe. If the president was to resemble a European monarch, what should his title be? 
led by Vice President John Adams, the Senate debated for a month this issue of the title, uh, the proper title for the president. He could not be called simple, simply His Excellency, for governors of the states were called His Excellency, and the president was obviously had to be superior to the president. He couldn't be a president, as John Adams said. Golf clubs have a president. We've got to have somebody more, something more dignified than that. A royal or at least a princely title, said Adams, will be found indispensably necessary to maintain the reputation, authority, and dignity of the president. Only something like his highness, or if you will, his most benign highness would do, said Adams. Eventually, under Adams's prodding, a Senate committee reported the title, His Highness, the President of the United States of America and Protector of Their Liberties. Although Washington himself, and this is interesting, although Washington himself had initially favored the title, for, for his own title, His High Mightiness, the President of... <laughs> The President of the United States and Protector of Their Liberties. Notice the United States is always in the plural, their liberties. Uh, but because the controversy, once that erupted, Washington backed away quickly. He, and he, he was so relieved when Madison finally, uh, in the House, decided on the simple title of Mr. President. Washington was relieved. But his first in instinct was to have uh, this elaborate title. Still, the talk of royalizing the new republic continued and heightened the fears of, of many Americans. The financial program of Secretary of Treasury Hamilton, with its funded debt and the Bank of the United States, was modeled on that of the, of the British monarchy. Indeed, like the British ministers of His Majesty George III's government, Hamilton sought to use patronage and every other source of influence to win support for his and Washington's program. To many Americans, however, it looked as if the idea of British uh, uh, monarchical corruption, which is what they meant by influence, patronage, using patronage to build support, that this corruption, this idea had spread to America. Because of these very real apprehensions of monarchy and monarchical corruption, the first decade or so of the, uh, of the new American Constitution could never be a time of ordinary politics. In fact, the entire period was racked by a series of crises that threatened to destroy the national government that had been so recently and painstakingly created. The new expanded Republic of the United States was an unprecedented political experiment, and everyone knew that. No similar national republic in modern times had ever extended over such a large extent of territory. Since all theory and all history were against the success of this Republican experiment, the political leaders worried about every unanticipated uh, development. With even President Washington's having suggested at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention that the new federal government might not last 20 years, most political leaders in the 1790s had no great faith that the Union would survive. In such uneasy and fearful circumstances, politics could never be what we would today call normal politics. The parties that emerged in the 1790s, the Federalists and the Republicans, were not modern parties. And competition between them was anything but what some uh, scholars used to call the first party system. No one thought that the emergence of parties was a good thing. Indeed, far from building a, a party system in the 1790s, the nation's leaders struggled to prevent one from emerging. The Federalists, under the leadership of Washington, Adams, and Hamilton, never saw themselves as a party but as the beleaguered, legitimate government beset by people uh, allied with revolutionary France out to destroy the Union. 
Although the Republicans, under the leadership of Jefferson and Madison, did reluctantly describe themselves as a party, they believed that they were only a temporary party, like the Whigs of the 1760s, designed to prevent the United States from becoming a Federalist-led British-backed monarchy. Since neither the Federalists nor the Republicans accepted the legitimacy of the other, partisan feelings ran very high, making the bitter clash between Hamilton and Jefferson, for example, more than just personal. Indeed, the 1790s became one of the most passionate and divisive decades in all of American history, and, and, and I think came as close to, we came as close to civil war as we would come until the actual civil war uh, in, 17, in 1861. Now, more than any other person, Washington held this divided country together. With the leaders of these two hostile parties, Hamilton and Jefferson, in the cabinet, Washington was able to use his immense prestige and good judgment to restrain fears, limit intrigues, and stymie opposition that otherwise might have escalated into serious violence. In 1794, he delicately combined coercion and conciliation and avoided bloodshed in putting down the Whiskey Rebellion an uprising of hundreds of farmers in western Pennsylvania. Despite the intense partisan feelings that existed throughout the country, he never entirely lost the respect of all the party leaders, and this respect allowed him to reconcile, resolve, and balance the clashing interests. He realized only too keenly the fragility of the new nation, and he devised a number of schemes for creating a stronger sense of, of nationhood. He understood the power of symbols, the reason he sat, he was willing to sit for long hours uh, to have his portrait painted. I think there were 43 sittings at different points. Uh, was to, not because he had a big ego, but because he wanted to encourage respect for the new national government. In the absence of long existing feelings of nationalism in the 1790s, remember, people's loyalties were to their states. They had, many of these states had gone back uh, 150 years. The nation is new. People's emotional ties were to their states. That was when they talked about my country, they meant Virginia or Massachusetts. So popular celebrations of, uh, celebrations of Washington became a substitute for patriotism. Commemorations of his birthday did in fact come to rival those of the 4th of July. It's not too much to say, I think, that for many Americans, he stood for the Union. As president, he was always acutely sensitive to the varying interests of the country and fervent in his efforts to prevent the nation from fragmenting and falling apart. He understood his two, he undertook his, his two long royal-like tours of the country in 1789 and again in 1791 in order to bring the government to the farthest reaches of the land and, and to reinforce the loyalty of people who had never seen him. He promoted roads and canals and the post office, anything and everything, that would bind the different states and the different regions together. He, even, he and Martha even held dinner parties where they would made up one congressman with a woman, a congressman from New Jersey with a woman from Virginia, hoping that they would intermarry and bring the union together. More than any other person, he was responsible for backing Pierre Lafont in designing the magnificent federal city that, that bears his name. Since he hoped that the United States would eventually become a great nation, rivaling, if not surpassing, the powerful states of Europe, he wanted a capital that would suit this potentially great nation. If Jefferson had had his way, the national capital would have been the size of a college campus, about 1,500 acres. It was Washington, acting as a Republican monarch, 
who was most responsible for making the presidency the powerful national office it became. But more important, it was the president people it was the people's trust, I think, in Washington, the Republican monarch, that enabled the new government and the new nation to survive. Now, as in the case of his, uh, uh, of his career as commander-in-chief, his most important act as president was his giving up of the office. The significance of his retirement from the presidency is easy for us to overlook, but his contemporaries knew very well what it meant. Most people assumed, as I said, Jefferson assumed that he would be president as long as he lived, that he would be a kind of elective monarch, something not out of the question, of course, in the 18th century. Hence, his persistent efforts to retire from the presidency enhanced his moral authority and helped fix the Republican character of the Constitution. We know that there's been no president quite like him, and we can be sure that we'll not see his like again. I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you if you uh, expect me to assail Professor Wood for having been favorably disposed toward Washington, or if you had hoped that I would open up with both barrels on our first president. I'm afraid I have to admit that I rather like George Washington, especially the George Washington between the time that he became commander of the Continental Army in 1775 and the time that he left the presidency in 1797. I have some problems with young Washington when he was uh, in the French and Indian War, but uh, even there, I think he ultimately came to understand his numerous mistakes and avoided repeating uh, them later in life. And I have some problems with Washington uh, after he left the presidency, but that was not part of uh, Professor Wood's paper, so uh, I won't won't go there. Uh, as for Wash as for President Washington, I think the country uh, was quite fortunate to have him uh, as its first president. And in fact, I've participated in a couple of uh, these polls of scholars where you rank the presidents, and on both occasions, I ranked Washington number one. Although, uh, uh, with some vacillation in both, on both occasions as to whether it should be Washington or Lincoln. Despite what I've said about Washington, I believe that he is open to criticism in some areas that Professor Wood addressed. Let me begin where Professor Wood began, with how Washington consciously sought to shape the presidency with a certain monarchical tone to the point that he acted as a Republican king. As you heard, Washington consulted those who were close to him, and each essentially advised him to take on royal heirs. Only John Adams, I might add, had the foresight to tell Washington that the office would gradually develop according to the personality of its uh, <coughs> occupant. Washington drew on their advice and it is not inconceivable that he may have also been swayed by some of the considerable literature in favor of constitutional monarchy that had been generated by French reformers and English real Whigs in the 18th century. Furthermore, as Professor Wood noted, 
James McHenry and others whispered in Washington's ear that a constitutional monarchy had just been achieved in America through the recent Constitutional Convention. Another body of opinion, one that was quite different and conflicting to be sure, existed that Washington might also have drawn on. That was the point of view of the anti-federalist. Their views could, in many respects, be traced back to the ancestors of the founding generation who had fled the royal governments in Europe and the core of their, and the core of their ideas uh, most certainly had been set forth in a pulsating manner in Thomas Paine's extraordinarily popular common sense. Like Paine, the anti-federalists believed that kingship was, and these are Paine's words, a ridiculous institution that had corrupted the British Constitution by siphoning off the power of the commons. Furthermore, the anti-federalists loathed the notion of reverential submission to a crown, equating it, and again this is Paine's term, with idolatry. When Paine held up the American Revolution as the birthday of a new world and the point of departure for beginning the world over again, he and those that he inspired, many of whom incidentally soldiered to achieve independence, and some in quest of independence died in January 1777, only a few steps from where we are gathered tonight, were most certainly not dreaming of a United States with a Republican king in any way, shape, or form. What is more, the anti-federalists were not an insignificant portion of the population. Two states had spurned the proposed Constitution, and the anti-federalists may have constituted a majority of the delegates elected to as many as four other state conventions. In still two other states, they constituted quite sizable minorities. That means a substantive percentage of the politically active population had opposed the ratification of the Constitution. And for many among them, if the considerable anti-federalist literature is any guide, it was because they believed, as Philadelphensis wrote, that the president will be a king and one of the most dangerous kind, too. Patrick Henry opposed ratification in part because he thought the proposed presidency squinted toward monarchy, as he put it. Given the office's uh, eminent magisterial situation, uh, warned George Clinton of New York, an ambitious president could ruin his country. An anonymous Cato thought the president and the British monarch would be substantially the same in influence, and like the king in London, America's chief executive would become an angel of darkness, he said. The federal farmer, who may have been Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, even suggested that it would have been better had the Constitution actually created a monarchy but made the office symbolic and devoid of power. Yet Washington neither consulted the anti-federalists nor took their anxious concerns into consideration as he shaped 
his office. He might have launched the new government by trying to reassure the considerable portion of the population that feared Federalist consolidation. Instead of agreeing to play the Republican king, he might simply have been the Republican president. If there was one person in the United States with the exalted image and reputation necessary for making the presidency into a powerful office without having to vest it with the trappings of royalty, it was George Washington. He might have tailored his office in such a way that Samuel Adams or Thomas Paine or any number of those new men, Aravista, who with independence had gained political pro greater political prominence than would have been possible in the colonial era, would have felt comfortable in the presence of the president. Instead, Washington fabricated an office that prompted more than one British visitor to exclaim with delight that being in the company of Washington was like being with a great European monarch. Indeed, Britain's minister to the United States thought that calling on Washington was akin to a visit to the court of George III. Washington's behavior was enigmatic. Before his presidency, Washington certainly took pains to demonstrate that he was neither a monarchist nor a conscious of better of monarchy. He rebuked officers in the Continental Army who proposed a kingship for him. And more than a year before the Constitutional Convention, he deplored those respectable characters who speak of a monarchical form of government without horror. He said that republicanism, which, by the way, he characterized as a system of government founded on the basis of equal liberty, he said that he believed that the failure of republicanism would be a triumph for the advocates of despotism, as they could claim, as they were always wont to do, that republicanism everywhere and every time was inevitably doomed to fail. Yet when Washington took office, he comported himself as something of a king, snubbing anti-monarchical opinion and listening, as best as I can determine, solely to America's most conservative elements who urged him to let the European courts be the template on which he shaped his office. Early on, Washington had to know that many, perhaps most, were intolerant of the dross of monarchy in the new executive branch. Vice, Pre uh, Vice President Adams's misbegotten stand in the titles controversy in 1789 that Professor Wood mentioned should have informed the first president of the climate of opinion. Almost everyone else appears to have learned from Adams's blunder. What is more, by 1792, an opposition press was flailing away at what it labeled the anti-Republican elite that, and these are James Madison's words, desired a docile citizenry that should think of nothing but obedience, of submission to those who sought to have power by degrees narrowed into fewer hands and approximated to an hereditary form. 
One who did get the message was Adams himself. He moved from a sumptuous residence to a small rented room where he lived a solitary existence as vice president. And when he was elected president in 1796, he directed Abigail to have their carriage delivered to Philadelphia, but not before she had first removed the family's coat of arms from the carriage doors. It would only invite vulgar insolence, he said. If others readily discern public opinion, what was Washington thinking? It is tempting to suggest that Washington was simply being Washington. Throughout his adult life, he had exhibited a reserved, formal, and aloof bearing, and it would have been inconceivable for him to have assumed a new public persona at age 57. On the other hand, he had succeeded in fashioning his Olympian manner without the ornamentation of royalty. So why did he adopt it now? John Adams once characterized Washington as one of the great thespians of his day. And it may be that Washington, as Professor Wood has said, thought it necessary to embrace majestic ceremony, monarchical symbolism, and popular inaccessibility to play the part of an elected king, uh, in other words, because he believed that those accoutrements alone would enhance the stature of his office. But if Washington was just acting, who was his audience? The people? Not one in 50 of them was likely ever to see President Washington. It is more plausible that he sought to impress Congress uh, and important state officials and to demonstrate to them the power of his office, which after all was the very capstone of the nationalist movement's program for consolidation. It is possible, too, that he was on stage seeking to convey to those who represented narrow, local, and sectional interests that, like a monarch, the President of the United States alone tended to the national interest. Thomas Jefferson offered another explanation for Washington's behavior. Late in his life, Jefferson said that he believed that Washington had thought an American monarchy was inevitable and that he had sought to prepare the way for it through his levees, birthday celebrations, and what Jefferson called his pompous meetings with Congress. According to Jefferson, Washington was trying to assure that when the day of monarchy dawned, it would come on with as little shock as might be to the public mind. At first blush, that sounds unlikely. However, in 1787, Washington told Madison that despite the, and these are Washington's words, the utility, nay necessity of monarchy, the period is not yet arrived for adopting the change. If the reasons for Washington's behavior are clouded, what is crystal clear is that late in his presidency, in the wake of the Jay Treaty episode, Washington came under an unprecedented partisan assault. He was vilified in the Republican press as an Anglophile 
and the puppet both of Alexander Hamilton and Tory merchants. But much of the rising clamor against him focused on the style that he had chosen for the presidency, the pomp with which he surrounded his office, the personal flattery that he purportedly solicited, his haughty manner, and what one critic assailed as the monarchical fashions that he relished. The president began his political career as if he had inherited a kingdom, said another writer, and still another blasted the monarchical prettinesses of his administration, including Levy's drawing rooms, stately nods instead of shaking hands, titles of office, and seclusion from the people. In this season of recrimination, Thomas Paine savaged Washington as a hypocrite in public life. He was, said Paine, either an apostate or an imposter, for the question was whether Washington had abandoned good principles or whether he had ever had any. When Washington sought advice in 1789, he turned to a set of men who, almost without exception, would ultimately become important figures in the Federalist Party. By the time he came under heavy attack in the Republican press in 1795 and 1796, Washington's assailants were simultaneously portraying Federalists as pompous nabobs and grandees who demanded a deference from their social inferiors as committed to the belief that only those who exhibited the stamp of gentility were worthy of holding high office, as elitists who delighted in levees in capacious mansions and soirees in posh clubs, as the guardians of social tradition and circumscribed economic opportunities for those without privilege, and as the foes of expanded suffrage rights and popular participatory politics. These bloggers dissolved the line between Washington and the Federalists, causing the first president to be portrayed as a stuffy royalist who was committed to a reproachful past. To be sure, some of the defamation came because of Washington's support for the Jay Treaty and his imprudent comments about the Democratic-Republican societies. But much of it was in response to the kingly style that he had manufactured for the presidency. Had Washington been more heedful of the anxious concerns raised by the Federalists, he might have avoided this slew of reproach and nevertheless realized the grand achievements of his presidency. Soon after Washington took office, Chancellor Robert Livingston, who had administered the oath of office, cautioned him that if he was never to unbend, never to mingle, but with a small circle, he would become disquietingly limited in his perspective and choices. With regard to the choices that Washington made concerning the shape of the presidency, Livingston's advice could not have been more sound. Many who attended John Adams's inauguration in 1797 wept at the realization that Washington's presidency was at an end, 
And many more were plunged into grief at the news of his death in December 1799. One year later, however, almost to the day, nearly as many exalted at the news of the election of Jefferson to the presidency. For among other things, they were certain that at last a resolute enemy of monarchy was ascending to the nation's highest office. Throughout the fiercely partisan decade of the 1790s, the nation was about equally divided between those who wanted a Republican king and those who abhorred monarchy in any form. And Washington, like his fellow citizens, may privately have been of a a divided mind when he assumed office, holding monarchy in contempt as he professed, yet certain that the presidency had to be garnished with royal heirs to give the deeply divided populace a seemingly nonpartisan symbol around which it could rally. But all that can be said for sure is that Washington had listened exclusively to the side that after 1800 rapidly became a historical anachronism, another casualty in an American revolution that, as Professor Wood said elsewhere, was truly a radical event. As this evening's closing speaker, I face a difficult task. Difficult for two reasons. First, I have somehow to find fault with Professor Wood's excellent paper. And second, I have somehow to say something original about George Washington. Wood's paper correctly concludes that Washington was the only American capable of endowing the presidency with the strength and prestige vital to its success. According to Wood, Washington established himself as the greatest American president by carefully setting countless executive precedents. Wood's thesis is rock solid, leaving me little to do besides quibble over details. Perhaps Wood should emphasize Washington's critical role in calling the 1787 Federal Convention and in the ratification campaign. Perhaps Wood overestimates the sincerity of Washington's reluctance to become the first president. Perhaps, too, Wood could cite additional examples of vital precedents Washington established, such as Washington's careful use of the veto power. But these are minor points, and they detract little from Wood's well-argued thesis. Indeed, it's hard for me to find fault with this paper. But if I had to identify a weakness, it would be that to me the paper suffers from a very mild case of schizophrenia. First, Wood argues that any political reform that involved strengthening the executive was almost unthinkable in revolutionary America, but only Washington made it possible. For example, Wood tells how, at the 1787 Federal Convention, when James Wilson suggested that the executive consist of one man an awkward silence fell over the delegates. Later on in the paper, however, 
It seems to me that Wood changes his tune very slightly, suggesting that monarchy was perhaps possible in America, but that Washington's virtue and character prevented it. It seems to me that perhaps Wood is trying to have it a little bit both ways, and of course you can't have it both ways. Either monarchy was simply out of the question in revolutionary America, or monarchy fell within Washington's grasp. It's got to be one or the other, not both. So which view is right? Personally, I do not believe that Washington could ever have become a king. I do not believe the scepter was ever within his reach. I do not think a crown was ever there for the taking. The American Revolution meant much more than trading one monarch for another. This was a Republican revolution, a revolution for rule by the people through elected representatives. This was not an aristocratic revolution to crown a new king. After all, the new Constitution just barely achieved ratification. The power of the presidency was one of the Anti-Federalists' main grievances, a, grievances, a grievance nearly big enough to torpedo the whole document. The Constitution would never have been ratified had it conferred anything approaching monarchical status on the chief executive. But could the presidency have been administered into a monarchy after ratification? during Washington's two terms in office. Jefferson and Madison believed that was Hamilton's goal, to administer the federal government into a monarchy. True, Washington did administer the federal government into a stronger regime, but the country nearly came to blows over it. Had Washington gone much further in the direction of monarchy, he would have torn the new nation apart. What made Washington great, in my view, is that he understood this. And so instead of antagonizing the Anti-Federalists, he was smart enough to win most of them over. By not being so terribly monarchical, Washington caused the Anti-Federalist movement largely to dry up and disappear. Thanks largely to Washington, the Anti-Federalists came to accept the new Constitution. And instead of fighting to change the new Constitution, or to weaken the presidency, the Anti-Federalists actually came to be people who fought to preserve what they had formerly opposed. Washington's conduct as president was a major reason for the disappearance of Anti-Federalism. The disappearance of Anti-Federalism was a critical development that provided the new regime with political legitimacy. I think Washington was great because he recognized that he could not be a king. Washington understood that if he tried to become a king, he would ruin the new American Republic. There was perhaps an interval during which Washington might have become king, but that was earlier, during the Revolutionary War itself. Perhaps Washington could have become a monarch if as commander-in-chief, he had led a military coup, overthrown Congress, and established himself as dictator. But after Washington retired back to Mount Vernon in 1783, I think monarchy was out of the question. And even while Washington was commander-in-chief, I doubt monarchy was ever really within his grasp. For corroboration, let me quote another founder also to be reconsidered at this conference, James Madison. 
Years after the revolution, Madison commented, quote, I have always believed that if General Washington had yielded to a usurping ambition, he would have found an insuperable obstacle in the incorruptibility of those under his command. The exalted praise due him and them was derived not from a forbearance to effect a revolution within their power, but from a love of liberty and of country which nothing could have seduced. I am not less sure that General Washington would have spurned a scepter if within his grasp than I am that it was out of his reach if he had secretly sighed for it, unquote. I repeat Madison's conclusion. A scepter was out of Washington's reach, even if he had secretly sighed for one. And thus, I think Wood is 100% right that Washington alone made a strong presidency possible in America, but I think I would have to disagree with Wood that Washington could actually possibly somehow have become a king. I'm going to ask Professor Wood to follow up since he's uh, been the somewhat gentle target of, 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 of muted barbs. And then uh, we'll open the floor for, uh, for questions, comments, and so on. Sure. I, think I, I just might clarify what I was trying to say. I never claimed that Washington wanted to be king, could have become king. I don't believe that the country would have accepted a king. That was never a possibility. The social structure was moving in the opposite direction, unbeknown to most of the founders. They had no idea it was going to be the age of Jackson and the common man was going to emerge. So I, I never was arguing that Washington had the slightest desire to become a king. He did desire to acquire, I think, some of the trappings of royalty because he thought that was the only way you could hold this country together. He understood his own symbolic importance, but he had no ambitions to be a king. Far from it, quite the contrary. And as soon as he realized that the title that he had chosen for himself was, was, was opposed by so many people, he, he accepted with relief Madison's suggestion of Mr. President. So uh, I just wanted to clarify that mm -hmm. point. Uh, there was never a possibility of the United States becoming a monarchy. But it's important they didn't know the future. We know it. We know it how it turned out. If we are going to understand the Jeffersonian Republican movement, if we're going to take it seriously, those people believed that monarchy was a possibility. And all I'm suggesting is we have to understand the context of their fears. They had some reason to believe as they did. Now, we know that that was not possible, but only in retrospect. They did not know the future, and they had quite rightly feared the growth of monarchy in America, as misguided as they turn out to have been. So having had this banquet, uh, uh, this is now your opportunity to uh, ask anything you may have always or sometimes wanted to ask about uh, the presidency but didn't have a target, or, or George Washington and didn't have, have a target. So I'll acknowledge beginning right there. Am I not correct in believing that the Constitution provides 
Well, as I mentioned, I could, there may be others who... Uh, yeah. Elected kings, that were put, the king of Poland was elected. Um, the assumption was that he could be an elected monarch. As I said, the Yale students were debating, which is better, an elected monarchy or a hereditary monarchy? So these things were in the air. The idea of, it, of his being elected didn't seem to strike at the heart of what a king was about. That's right, but he could be elected for life. Look, we have I think most of the Republican presidents outside of Western Europe are, are essentially elected uh, monarchs. How often has Mubarak uh, been defeated in an election? It goes on and on, and that was until Saddam Hussein was, until we invaded his country, he was an elected monarch, in effect. And so the notion of an elected monarchy it's not so strange to us. I mean, elected official who acts like a monarch. We yeah. have them. We've had them in many parts of the world, uh, even see, in our own time. I see enough white hair to know that there are people here who remember a president who was elected four times and died in office. Too. Yeah, I mean, clearly Washington would have been elected as many times as he ran. And, you know, what Washington really was determined to do was to uh, get out of office before he died. Because I think he recognized that that is what could have created a presidency for life where the four-year elections are mere formalities. It's really not the two-term tradition that Washington was trying to establish. That really came about by accident. Washington really wanted out after one term. Um, but he was determined to get out of this office before he died so he wouldn't have set that bad precedent. And it turned into a two-term tradition but it wasn't necessarily two terms Washington was going for. It's Jefferson who sets the term, two-term tradition. Think of it. He's the one who, who sets the, the precedent. Elizabeth Marvick? Uh, it seems to me that you've emphasized here very heavily the pomp and circumstance of the office with which Washington tried for his, his position. Uh, he understood the limits No, no, I, 
what, what you say is quite, quite, quite correct. Of course, Washington did exercise what you might call prerogative powers, the proclamation of neutrality. You know, some might have said the Senate should have been brought into that, uh, but he kind of just, uh, sleight of hand, he just went ahead and enacted it, uh, pro proclaimed it as a, as a prerogative power, if you will. What's interesting, of course, in light of our own time, is the one thing that the president does, did not have, and this was the Congress was really concerned about this, is the power to declare war, which had always been a prerogative power of the king. House of Commons does not declare war. The king declares war and makes peace. The House of Commons votes supplies, but the declaration of war belongs with the monarch, and that was the thing all of these anti-monarchists, these Republicans, small r, feared, because the last three centuries of, of Western history had, had been monarchs going to war, extracting money and men from their societies to fate, wage war. So that's why they write into the Constitution the war power, the declaration of war will belong with the Congress. In light of our own history in the last half century, we've forgotten that provision. <laughs> and now the president, in effect, goes to war using his commander-in-chief authority. Uh, but that was the one limitation that they wrote in that was going to distinguish this president from the King of England. And, and ironically, in our own time, we've, we're back with the King of England. <laughs> Questions, comments, um, glosses? Yes. I'm not having a little louder. Washington was really ambivalent about becoming president. I, I think he, he enjoyed retirement. It was a time of tranquility for him. I, I think he was, came from a family um, in which a great many men uh, died at a young age. And I think he was, was uh, fearful that he, too, uh, was going to die at a young age. And he didn't have very much time left <coughs> when he got into the late 1780s. Well, on the other hand, I, I think he, he missed the, the scene of action, too. And uh, uh, I think he wanted to be part of this. I think he was really kind of conflicted and torn, uh, torn both ways. But on the other thing that, that um, you, you ask about, I, I said it in my opening remarks that I thought the country was extremely fortunate to have Washington as its first president. And... And for a number of reasons, but, but most importantly, I think, uh, because Washington uh, uh, really didn't have to, to prove his manhood 
any longer. He he had done that in in the French and Indian War, and he had done that again in the in the uh, Continental Army in the War of Independence. Um, and I think the country was extremely fortunate to have a first president uh, who, who who did not have to do that. And and when he was under enormous pressure. Uh, in 1794 and, and 95, in the crisis with Great Britain, to go to war with Great Britain, and they feared, I think, that that war would just pull this this nation apart and perhaps destroy the Union. That uh, he was able to resist that, and I'm not sure very many others um, um, would have been able to to resist that. I don't think Washington's uh, ambition uh, ever went away, but I think he got uh, more sophisticated about power, and I think um, he's a person who became uh, masterful at becoming more and more powerful by pushing power away, retiring, and pretending he didn't want it. John's observation reminds me, just to be uh, to race ahead uh, uh, more than a century, uh, when I was doing my work on Eisenhower, I, I frequently met with, uh, with his most important advisor and closest uh, uh, supporter, and this was his young, youngest brother, Milton Eisenhower, and Milton had been a, a president of Penn, of Penn State during Ike's first term, and of, then he went to Hopkins during Ike's second term. Well, at Penn State, uh, the commencement was held outdoors in the football stadium because so many people came to see their children graduate or their grandchildren graduate. But if there was threatening rain, particularly thunderstorms, then it <coughs> would have to be moved into a field house and a lot of people couldn't go. So, uh, so that was something the president worried about a lot. And in 19, uh, uh, and in 1955, Ike was the commencement speaker, and thunderclouds were looming. And Milton said, "Well, I, you know, I said to my brother, I'm totally distraught. I don't know what to do. What's your advice?" And my brother said, "I haven't worried about the weather since June 1944." <laughs> 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 uh, on this point, I, I might add that the, the high point of, of Washington's career was, and the thing that made him an international celebrity was his resignation uh, of, of commander-in-chief in, in December of, of, of 1783. It electrified the world. No, no victorious general in modern history had ever given up uh, his sword without expecting political rewards commensurate with his victories. And, and this goes back to Caesar in Cromwell, Marlborough, and of course later Napoleon would, would, would show that this was a rare act and everybody knew it. They just couldn't, they called him a modern Cincinnati. And that was his, his moment of fame and he knew it. And what's interesting, if you look at his correspondence in the spring of 1787, his colleagues are trying to talk him into coming to the convention. They need him. They need him as a, and he had promised the American people, I am retiring from public life and I will not engage in public office anymore. And this is what, of course, electrified the world, that he had withdrawn from politics and was not expecting any rewards. And so he said, How can, I can't do this. I've already promised I can't come to this convention. And they said, you've got to come. We need you. And, and he says, no. He actually sounds so egotistical that Douglas Southern Freeman said, this man is an egotist. He lost. Because he says, 
You haven't got much to lose. You haven't got the fame I have. What, what will happen? I'll lose my fame. He actually says this. I will lose my reputation if I get involved in this thing and it fails. And, and, and all I've worked for, I've reached this world that I'm going to be uh, famous forever, and, and, and you want me to, to risk that. And they, knew, they understood what he was talking about. People like Rufus King and others, Henry Knox, they write and say, the only thing that got him, I think it was Knox that wrote to him, said, look, it, what, what will happen is if this thing fails, they'll blame you because you wanted to take over a military dictatorship when anarchy results. And that was the argument that got him and he went to the convention. So he was a, a very peculiar person uh, at that moment. Once he went to the convention, then I think he knew he was going to be president and I think he was much more receptive of the presidency of the, of the United States than he had been of attending the convention. That's really what he resists all, all along. I hope this is wetting at least some of your appetites for the succession of sessions that we're going to have tomorrow. I, I would say maybe two or three more questions now and then the usual uh, informal cornering of people and so on. And the gentleman right here is... about today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean. Americans, and I think this is widespread, they want to know, what would George Washington think of our present day situation? And I don't believe there's any developed country in the world with which where that, those questions would be asked about people who existed 200 years earlier. Uh, I mean, He'd probably be, well, I don't know. I think he would have been proud that he had created this strong nation. I think it's Madison and Jefferson who would be appalled. Uh, Hamilton and, and Hamilton would be delighted. He'd love the CIA, <laughs> Defense Department, all that. Uh, Washington was closer to Hamilton than he was to Jefferson. So I think he'd probably be... Not all that disappointed that we've become the greatest power the world has ever seen. I mean, who could have predicted that? They thought that we, we might become a great power, but the greatest power that the world has ever seen? They'd be pleased. Oh, about the party system. Well, they didn't want it, and they, in Washington, uh, his last letter, uh, one of the last letters he writes in July to uh, Trumbull, Governor Trumbull of Connecticut, who says, by the way, Mr. President, we want you to come out of retirement and run for office against this French president, Jefferson, I mean this French candidate, Jefferson. And Washington said, I had enough. I'm not coming out anymore. And he says, it doesn't matter anyhow. He said, you could put a broomstick up. Parties have taken over. Men of character don't matter. Put a broomstick up and put a, a liberty hat on it and it'll be elected. And he says, this is true even of the Federalists. He says, that's true, of course, of the Republicans. But, and he was right in the sense uh, democratic politics made his kind of candidacy, was making his kind of candidacy irrelevant. And, and pretty soon, we've reversed the whole process. It used to be, and I think you'll find this out if you listen to Joanne Freeman's paper, it used to be that you had to have 
establish credentials of character, of social position ahead of time, that was the prerequisite to elected office. Because they didn't have police forces and so on to, uh, to, to back up authority. But we've reversed it, and that's what democracy is about. Instead, our political office becomes the source of one's credentials, of one's uh, social position or whatever. That, in a sense, is what democracy is about. I mean, one thinks of Bill Clinton. He would not have been, he was nobody until he became attorney general and governor of Arkansas and then president. We established his credentials. The office established his credentials. Washington's time, the idea was that you would bring to the office previously existing credentials of character or social position, and that you would infuse the office with those, with that social authority or moral authority. Once that got reversed, then we're into a whole new ballgame in a democratic society. I'll take the two hands that are up now, and uh, let me have you each ask your question, and then, then we'll see what occurs from this end, and then we'll, we'll make our way back through the rain. So, um, starting up there. Could you, could you comment on Okay, and the and next question may be unrelated, but but. Let me invite the panel just to go in the original order and make any observations they want and be and either be to the point or be oblique well, on these matters. Well, I'll leave Stuart to answer that. Yeah. As far as the economic program, he bought into Hamilton's program. Hamilton's program was succeeding. The country was prospering. It was a golden age of, of prosperity, and uh, it's the economy stupid was sort of the... Uh, his, he, he was no great economist. None of those Southern planters fully understood banking or, in fact, John Adams never understood what a bank was. Uh, it, it was not easy. Uh, Hamilton was one of the few uh, who did. And, and Washington bought into it. But as far as his plantation, he ran Mount Vernon. He had more people working on his farm in Mount Vernon than he did for the federal government at the outset. <laughs> so uh, he knew how to run a plantation, and he made it pay. Unlike Jefferson, his colleague, he, he, he didn't go into debt. Uh, so he was a good administrator, he, and he understood what Hamilton's program was doing. Whether he understood a bank or not, and the whole banking structure, that's another issue. But at least he saw, what he, he saw the reality of what was happening under, under Hamilton's program, and he accepted it. 
whereas the Republicans simply couldn't buy into that. As far as they're concerned, this is a bunch of, uh, of speculators who, who are uh, moving uh, uh, stocks around in some sleight of hand, and they simply couldn't understand at all what, what Hamilton was doing. Uh, so Washington at least had enough common sense to, to know, to be able to judge reality uh, in, a, in an honest fashion. I think the uh, people at Mount Vernon say that in, in polls that they've given, uh, people obviously remember that Washington was a soldier or that Washington was president, but that most people tend to forget that Washington uh, was a civilian for actually uh, the biggest part of his, of his adult years. And um, as Gordon said, he, he ran Mount Vernon, but he, he also, I think, had operations that that uh, uh, were expanded far beyond uh, uh, just agricultural pursuits. He, he had something of a fishing industry. Uh, slaves at Mount Vernon uh, spun uh, cloth that Washington sold. He had uh, investments in uh, uh, the Great Dismal Swamp and was exporting wood out of that area. He was trying to, to uh, build the Potomac uh, canal uh, to link uh, the Chesapeake and the Atlanta, uh, Atlantic with the, the West. And the point is that, that Washington, I think, was really uh, not just a farmer, but in, in reality he was a businessman. And uh, I've always thought that, that during the, the war, Washington's habit was um, to get up very early in the morning and work hard, worked a long day, and then in the evening uh, he had a, a light meal and oftentimes uh, his aides uh, surrounded him. And I think Washington had a very comfortable relationship with his aides. He, he saw them as blindly loyal and, and I wish we had transcripts <coughs> of what might have been said in those conversations between them. But, but one of the aides uh, who was with him for a very long time was, was Hamilton. And I suspect that uh, late in the war, Hamilton was probably uh, airing some of his uh, economic ideas. He was already writing them as the Continentalist uh, by 1780. And I suspect he was probably uh, tutoring Washington. And Washington, as a businessman, I think was receptive. Uh, to to many of those ideas and and I don't like like uh, Professor Wood I'm not sure that Washington understood everything in fact I think some people said at the time that the only person uh, in the government who understood uh, Hamilton's program was Albert Gallup and it probably was an overstatement but I'm not sure that Washington really understood it that thoroughly but I think he understood enough of it. Uh, and that he that he was drawn to it because of this business background that, that he had had. Yeah, the question to me was about um, whether Washington listened exclusively to the Federalists or whether he listened to the Republicans as well. Uh, I don't think it's true that Washington listened exclusively to the Federalists until I, I would say it's true at the very end of his presidency, but I wouldn't say it's true for most of his presidency. I think the remarkable thing about Washington is how hard he tried to sort of um, cue a middle path between the two extremes. Um, 
I think what happens during Washington's presidency is, is he himself moves in the direction of Hamilton and a stronger, more consolidated federal government ideologically. But I also think there's, there's a, a big shift that happens in Washington's cabinet that, that also has an impact on him. Um, earlier in his presidency, the cabinet is pretty balanced between Federalists and Republicans. But then Jefferson resigns from the cabinet. Washington wanted Madison to be Jefferson's successor because Washington wanted a strong Republican voice in the cabinet. And Madison <coughs> turned him down. And, you know, towards the end of his presidency, Washington is having trouble simply filling the cabinet posts. But what happens is he gets surrounded entirely by Federalists. And as all of the advice that he's receiving becomes all Federalist, he becomes more uh, and more Federalist. The other part of your question was, you know, how did Washington sort of strike this balance uh, on his behavior and his etiquette? Um, I think Washington... Um, he asked everybody for their opinion. He listened to everybody. He absorbed it all. He reflected on it very carefully. Uh, and then he reached his own decision. And I think the bottom line with Washington is he had tremendous political instincts. Um, and, and I think in, in many ways he was the politician of the age, although we don't often think of him as such. Uh, and sometimes we don't even think of him as being above Jefferson and Hamilton, but I think he was. That's how his contemporaries saw him. I think he had great political instincts, and he was, you know, the politician of his age. Well, this warms us up, and we're going to have a, a, a final session in the afternoon when pieces get put together, and there'll be plenty of opportunities to look at this galaxy of individuals in, in, in context. So thank you for coming. Thank you.